When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Athletic. Let's talk about six, baby. Let's talk about <laughs> you and me. Let's talk about all the good things and the bad things that may be. Let's talk about six. Big deep breath from Mo Salah. Liverpool have hammered at the door. Salah to push it open. Mo Salah pins it into the bottom corner and finally Liverpool break through. So Steven Gerrard got a standing ovation but he couldn't mastermind a shock win at Anfield for his new side Aston Villa. A Mo penalty and a clean sheet, that was the difference. And on the pod we're going to look at the Matip van Dijk double act and why they're doing so well and also who's most likely to succeed Jürgen when he finally does leave Liverpool plus the farcical Champions League knockout stage draw Salzburg looked a decent one but it's now ended up a return to the San Siro against Inter I'm Steve Hothersall this is the Red Agenda with James Pearce and Simon Hughes. We'll start with uh, Gerard's return, James. It was the pre-match talking point. Um, thankfully, it didn't create bigger headlines at the end of the day. No, it was uh, certainly the, the result that, that Liverpool wanted, sending their, their legendary figure away with, with nothing to show for what was a pretty gutsy and spirited Villa performance. They, they made life very difficult for Jurgen Klopp's side, I think. I think that's testament to the job that Gerard has done there already. When you think of um, you know the mess they were in, I think what they lost five or six on the bounce before he took over there, and yeah, he he had them set up very well. You know they didn't show too much ambition, I guess, in the first 60, 70 minutes, but um, space was at a premium. I actually thought Liverpool played pretty well. I thought there was there was a lot to admire until it got to that you know around the Villa penalty box where they were so starved of space, and then. They struggled to turn all that possession and territory into clear-cut chances. But yeah, once obviously Mo Salah tucks away that penalty, Villa had to come out and play. And um, yeah, although it got a little bit nervy late on, and I think Alisson had a little slice of luck, obviously with the clearance he hammered against Matip and then you know a bit of a clumsy challenge on Danny Ings, which I think some refs would have given a penalty for. Liverpool really should have killed Villa off on the counter-attack with the chances they had, you know, decision-making let them down at times. You know, similar to the week before at Wolves, I guess, a scrappy 1-0 can um, can sometimes be even more satisfying than putting three or four past someone. And especially when you look at, you know, the other results at the weekend, it was it was crucial in terms of keeping pace in the title race. Absolutely. Just getting over the line. Um, the emotion of, of Stephen's return, I don't know what you felt about this, Si. Obviously, there was the stand innovation that I mentioned, little chant of his name, but that was that was quickly overtaken then by the actual business at hand. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed the game. I, I thought it was a, a gripping game of football and proof that you don't always need goals and lots of them to be entertained. I, I just thought it was fascinating the way Villa set up. Obviously, Stevens being a part of Liverpool teams that have gone to big clubs in Europe and 
had to try and grind out a result one way or another. Uh, you think about some of the performances under Gerard Hule or Rafa Benitez. Clearly, I think he'd, he'd thought about some of those games because I thought Villa were really good defensively. I thought the two full-backs were excellent for Villa. You don't usually get full-backs being praised for defensive performances that much anymore. It seems to be the attacking threats. But you know when you think that they're up against um, the quality of Sadio Mane and, and Mo Salah, thought my target did really, really well the first half. He was just right by me where my seat was in the, the Kenny Dalglish stand. I thought he was excellent the first half. Salah is always going to create some chances, but I thought he dealt with the, the challenge of keeping him relatively quiet very well. On the other side, Matt Cash was good as well again. He's always going to have chances because of the way Liverpool play, but they stuck at it. I think in the end, I mean, nobody's really spoken about this, but obviously the, the penalty decision for Liverpool... I think it comes really just out of out of the Villa defenders having to concentrate for so long because they were on they were you know they were trying to absorb the pressure. You know you've got to concentrate for for really really hard. It's it's harder than people think. I think defending when you when you're doing it like that, and it seemed a bit of a tired, clumsy decision by Tyro Mings to me. You know, culmination of of all the things that I've just spoken about because it was a, it was a bombardment from Liverpool. that controlled. Bombardment. I thought Liverpool played very well. I thought it was a really encouraging performance from Liverpool because they showed a side that I don't think they have really shown this season too much. You know, similar sort of theme to the, the year when they won the league, where you know they didn't always have it their own way, and they, they had to really grind some of the performances out. So, yeah, it was a great game of football. I, I really enjoyed it. I took more. I, I was sort of captivated by the game more than some of the big wins that they've had this season because even after Liverpool scored, I thought Villa looked good going forward. They tried, they opened up and, and caused Liverpool a few problems, but Liverpool dealt with it, with it pretty well in the end, I think. There was a, a really good intensity to the match, wasn't there, James? Um, as I said, there was lots to look at. And there was quite a few Liverpool players to admire, not least the two that you've written about on The Athletic, and that's Virgil van Dijk and, and Joel Matip. You've particularly put the focus on Joel Matip. But just looking at the moment, the way you've got the, the two in midfield of Henderson and Fabinho and then Matip and Van Dijk, it's pretty tough for any team to get through these four currently. Yeah, and I think that's backed up by the by the stats, isn't it? I think I was looking back and I think, what, the last three Premier League games against Everton, Wolves and Villa, you know, Alisson's only had to deal with a combined total of three shots on target in what's that, four and a half hours of football, which is crazy, really. And that is testament to the... The protection in front of him. I thought I thought Alisson was actually strangely kind of nervy and, and jittery on the weekend, but it was you know, he, he wasn't really exposed too often. I think, you know, that midfield balance is perfect for me at the moment. You know, and I'm sure Klopp will have to rotate in the coming weeks when I think, you know, I think Thursday's visit in Newcastle is the first of five games in the space of thirteen days. So it's unrealistic. We're gonna see the same combination game after game, but you know, I, th- I think when the big games come along, that will be Liverpool's midfield now, w- w- if those three are fit. Because I just think, balance-wise, what they give you in terms of control, protection, and also the ability to influence the game going forward as well with Fabinho and Henderson and Thiago. And um, I thought it was telling that Thiago didn't seem to get forward as much as he has done in recent weeks. I think he was given extra responsibilities in terms of handling Villa you know, when they, when they did try and break away, when Liverpool's attacks broke down. So it was it was good. And I thought, and I thought yeah, I thought the two centre-backs were, were excellent. Again, I think, you know, Joel Matip, I think, has gone under the radar a little bit this season because, you know, there's been 
so much focus on, you know, especially obviously the return of Van Dijk. You know, we all know what Liverpool's fullbacks give them. You know, Thiago getting back to his best. And then, of course, the front three with all the goals that have been being scored. But um, I think when you rewind to the summer, you know, Matip looked like he was going to be relegated to being a backup option this this season after, you know, I mean, you spend £35 million on a new centre-back and you've got Van Dijk coming back, Gomez as well. Obviously, Nat Phillips ended last season in great form. But um, the big thing with John Matip has been not only getting him fit, but keeping him fit. And I think they've been quite clever in terms of managing his workload. You know, they brought in Andreas Schoenberger last season. You know, his role at Liverpool is on the kind of rehab recovery side where players are almost... They're not injured anymore, but they're not quite match fit. And then, you know, trying to get them up to speed and give them a base that ensures they don't break down again. And certainly that work seems to have paid off for Matip. You know, I think he started 12 of the 16 Premier League games and, and got through 90 minutes on each occasion. You know, we were we were saying last week, when we, how well Canate played against AC Milan. But, you know, he's having to be patient, the new boy, because Matip has shown that he's, he's far from finished and... Um, I just think him and Van Dijk complement each other really well. You know, Van Dijk is the vocal commanding presence and, and Matip just quietly goes about his business. And against deep-lying defences like Villa, that ability to slalom his way forward with the ball at his feet, which you know gets the crowd off their feet, is a really important asset to have. Yeah, there was one of those mazy runs. It wouldn't be a Matip performance without one, would it? Um, those stats are impressive, Sai, for him. I mean, we wouldn't be saying that about anyone else, but considering his injuries, the fact he's what, I think James said he's what started 12, number of 90 minutes he's, he's completed. Have they rebuilt him? Is he the million dollar man? How have all of a sudden they got this out of Joel Matip? When he's been fit, Steve, he's been a brilliant player for Liverpool. Obviously, 2018-19 season is sort of emerging since that team after a difficult few years, first few years as, as a Liverpool player for the same reasons, you know, wasn't able to stay on the pitch long enough to build a sort of momentum and rhythm in his game. I do think he needs that sort of, or he has needed that that dominant centre-half alongside him. He's, he's almost the second man. But saying that, I think this season he's been better than Van Dijk in, in, in most of Liverpool's games, really. He's, he's barely put a foot wrong. It might sound strange to say this, and maybe statistically I might be proven wrong, but it, it seems like he wins a huge number of headers, you know, from corners particularly. He's become like sort of the dominant figure, you know, to go and win the ball from 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 set pieces, both in an attacking sense and a defensive sense. As James mentioned there, that 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 run that he made, I think it shows now that he's got a sense of confidence about him, that he sort of feels a sense of place in the team, and you don't get many centre halves who are able to do that. I, I saw, I watched uh, the highlights from the Chelsea game the other day, and Antonio Rudiger does a lot of that sort of springing out from the back to go and meet a player or or bring the ball out. And that's becoming an increasing feature in modern football, I think, now. You know, players who are... You're not expecting players just to stay back, but to move forward and, and try and create space for other players as they do that. So I think he's become a really important player because Virgil van Dijk doesn't necessarily do that. I think we expected him to do it when he was signed, you know, a ball playing... He's obviously better on the ball, Virgil van Dijk, you know, a cleaner striker of the ball. But I, I just think that Matip's sort of unpredictability and, and, and aggression in doing what he does has opened up a new possibility for Liverpool in the way they attack as well. And of course, Van Dijk, I suspect, stays back because he's probably got that little bit more pace than the Matip if Liverpool were to be counter-attacked. I think that that's always in, in the mind. So he's become a really, really important player for Liverpool. And if they can, I think 
him being fit between now and the end of the season will make a massive, massive difference to what Liverpool win and, and don't win. I mean, every manager wants almost a static defence and goalkeeper, don't they, James? That's part of the key of it sometimes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think you definitely do need stability back there. And it tends to be the, the area where Klopp doesn't rotate as much. Although I think we probably will see a slight change with that just with the way that the, the schedule is and, and the calibre of the options he's got. Because you know he, ha- he has literally gone from one extreme to the other, hasn't he? With, you know, last season finding himself having to play midfielders as defenders and play, you know, sixth or seventh choice defenders who had, you know, virtually no experience to now, you know, you've got Van Dijk and Matip who, you know, to, to me that's the best combination in the Premier League at the moment. You've got Canate who, I think Canate's only played four Premier League games so far, but I wouldn't say that he's really struggled to adapt. I think it's just the calibre of the players in front of him. I thought, you know, he, I think he has adjusted to what Klopp has wanted from him, Canate. And then you've got Joe Gomez, who certainly be wrong to write him off when you know, he, he feels like he's been around forever, Joe Gomez. Yeah, you know, he's still only 24, still young in, in footballing terms. And um, you know, he, he's probably went, been the one, hasn't he, of the, the centre-backs that had lengthy spells out last season, who hasn't really been able to kick on. He obviously wasn't, wasn't picked at the start of the season and that calf injury kind of really set him back. But it was good to see him back back out there on the pitch coming off the bench against Milan last week and and he'll certainly be required because um there's just no way that you know for Matip in particular certainly isn't going to play 3 4 even 5 probably back to back in this crazy crazy period so yeah obviously sad to hear about Nat Phillips cracking his cheekbone and Klopp doesn't expect him to be available for a month or so but um with the number of players in front of Phillips it's Probably difficult to see him playing for Liverpool again anyway, and that, that shouldn't, I don't think that cracked cheekbone will stop him from moving on in January. If Liverpool get a decent offer, when you look at the state of Newcastle's defending yesterday, you think that Liverpool could pretty much name their price for Nat Phillips at the minute. So Nat's final appearance might have been in the San Siro for Liverpool. That would be some swan song, wouldn't it? Yeah, it wouldn't It wouldn't surprise me, because I think you know if you look at the, the time scale they're looking at in terms of if he's out for a month, so you're saying he's probably not going to be available for Liverpool till till mid-January and then you'd imagine by then if he hasn't left already you'd imagine that clubs would certainly be circling because you know why wouldn't I, th- I, th- I think he would instantly improve any defence in the certainly in the bottom half of the Premier League table so yeah I, you know when he played in the San Siro I thought well he probably will be needed again because you thought well there's you know he, he might feature against Leicester in the League Cup or Shrewsbury in the, the third round of the FA Cup but you know, it, it it does look now whether you know like that he's probably not going to be available for those due to this cheekbone injury. Right, let's go to Mo Salah. Of course, another goal uh, for him. So he's played in twenty two games this season, sixteen in the Premier League and in the Champions League, and he's scored or assisted in twenty of them. So played sixteen in the Premier League and the rest in the Champions League. We say it every week. We do another stat every week, Si. Um, the penalty was pretty cool. I don't think anyone felt there was any doubt at the time, did they? Well, I mean, I, I was watching the antics of the goalkeeper very closely. Um, it always seems to be... It, it was full of them, by the way, wasn't he, from yeah. the start of the game? I mean, it, it, the word antics always seem to come up when you're describing the goalkeeper trying to put a player off. But he was really trying to put Salah off, uh, as he has done with a few other players in the past. Uh, I think he did it with... Bruno Fernandes at Man United and succeeded and winding him up and blazing the shot over the bar, or the penalty over the bar a couple of months ago. But what impressed me about Salah was I think he was waiting for this to happen as well. 
and it, he just he just walked away from him basically, and, and and got as far away from him as possible, and calmed himself and didn't listen to him. So I thought that again, just another little sign that you know he's right at the peak of his game. He, he knows what to do in in most situations, and and I'd seen the six foot eight Argentinian goalkeeper coming. Um, and it was a great pen. It was a great pen. I think perfectly placed penalty. I was thinking, oh God, because there was obviously a bit of time between the penalty being given, which I thought was a penalty. I know Steven Gerrard said he felt that Salah had found Mings in the initial. Initially, I couldn't quite see that to be honest, but you could see like Mings as he was sort of trying to get back was scrambling and falling himself. And when players are moving as quickly as they are, I think it sometimes doesn't help to watch the slow motion replay because. It looks like you know the play has gone down too easily, but in real time, when you watch it back, it's quite clear to me that that, that Mings brought him down. But anyway, it was an excellent penalty, and you sort of sometimes think with all the, the sort of to and fro and that happens between the referee and VAR. We need to talk about the referee, by the way, Steve. Sorry, I'm just going off on a tangent here, but the referee in performance was one of the most annoying performances. I think I've I've ever seen in Anfield. I, I don't like to go on about referees, really. I, I very rarely do. I know they've got a tough job. But Stuart Artwell, it was almost like his attitude was, I've got to go in and throw my authority about as quickly as possible to show that I'm capable of managing a game at Anfield. Between him and the other officials, I think he got three decisions wrong in the first 60 seconds of the game. And the rest of the first half was so bad. It was just it was almost a joke, I, I thought, how, how bad he was. Anyway, I digress. But yeah, great penalty <laughs> by Mo Salah. Um, I'm glad that you let me speak about Stuart Atwell because it really did annoy me on Saturday. James, do you want to speak about the ref? <laughs> I hate agreeing with Simon, but I thought it was one of the worst refereeing performances I've seen at Anfield for Shocking, a, wasn't it? a very long time. I think um, it was just inept. He got so much wrong. He just came across as so weak as well. I mean, that, that ridiculous... You know, Martinez was like pushing it and pushing it and pushing it. And it was like, well, obviously he's going to have to book him now for time-wasting. And he gives him like a lengthy talking to. It's like, since when was there a warning system in place for that kind of thing? You know, you, 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 know, you really need to stop doing this. Although I will seriously think about showing you a yellow card. It was, yeah, you know, there was, there was one... He, he, I remember at one point he gave a... I think it was John McGinn appealed, like, as players do, shamelessly for a goal kick when it was clearly a corner. And he just went with the shout and gave a goal kick. He, you know, it was... You don't want to talk about referees because they do get an absolute kicking, don't they, week in, week out. But, yeah, that was as bad as it gets. I thought he made Anthony Taylor look like Blumen Collini with the, the way that uh, he was that bad on the on the weekend. And I, th- I thought it was a, a dreadful weekend for the standard of officiating in the Premier League full stop when I was sat in the Anfield media room watching the, the second half of Man City and... You know, obviously, when, once that penalty gets given, you're like, well, clearly that's getting overturned. It's hit him in the armpit. You know, you cannot give a penalty for that. And of course, after 20 replays, it stands. You know, yesterday saw Madison take for Leicester what was a blatant dive. And how on earth, you know, that, that penalty stood as well. You know, yes, of course, in the grand scheme of things, Newcastle got an absolute battering and it didn't massively influence it. But it's... It's just scary, isn't it? Sometimes how even even with the technology, they can get things so badly wrong. I actually thought in a funny kind of way, although Atwell's erratic decision-making kind of ruined the game at times, he also got the atmosphere going because it was such a horrendously cold, wet, miserable afternoon that there, there were times 
especially first half where I felt it went a bit flat. And um, yeah, nothing gets a full house at Anfield riled quite as much as an incompetent referee. And um, yeah, I, I thought Liverpool almost fed off that, especially second half when when that pressure you know rightly resulted in them than getting the penalty. And and overall, Liverpool was certainly good value for the win. Can I just make one more point on the, the, the issue of, of refereeing standards and official standards? I mean, th- this rule that the, the linesman or the assistant referee, yeah, I still do not understand the logic of allowing play to continue and the linesman not making a decision as it happens, as he sees it. Sooner or later, I, I'm absolutely convinced there's going to be a serious injury as a consequence of this. OK, I understand that if the play goes on and he's made a mistake, then you can't take it back. But where's the, where is the concern over player safety when it's so blatantly offside and he doesn't put his flag up and the play continues and players in the back of their minds think, I've got to run backwards and potentially make a tackle in desperation to stop this happening because I don't know for certain whether he was offside. There's been instances where the player's like two or three yards offside and they're letting the play go on just, just for the sake of the, you know, the person in the box hundreds of miles away being able to say I just think sooner or later there's going to be a serious injury in a football match not necessarily Liverpool that isn't the solution to the problems I can definitely say that and it really frustrates a lot of people in the crowd as well because it just feels like again this sort of make, it makes the the undermines the officials I think and makes them look look particularly quite weak and, and indecisive You'd have seen the same as me, Si. Whenever that happens the linesman gets absolute pelters yeah. from the supporter and you just think well, he's only following the rules that he's been yeah. told the guidelines to follow. I was, as I say, I was in that stand and I, I was there as a spectator on Saturday. And so when I'm a paying spectator, I feel like I'm allowed to swear and, and point and, <laughs> and, and at least make sure that the referee or the linesman feels a sense of frustration when things aren't right. And it's just making a very unhappy environment, I think, and making it more difficult for the referees because... As I said, it makes it look like that they don't know what's going on half the time. So they have to refine that one, I think, because it's just bizarre. It happens a couple of times. There was a balding assistant referee who just... I, I thought he'd broken his arm. His arm was wobbling about all over the place. He didn't know, seemed to know where he was where he was putting his flag most of the time in the first half. It was painful to watch, to be honest. And it just made him look totally incompetent. I actually do feel sorry for the assistants. Because they they must hate that rule. Because you get enough abuse, don't you, being a match day official without. I mean, that just invites abuse. Because as Simon said, it does make them look like they don't know what they're doing because they don't put the flag up when someone's clearly offside. So it does look like well, they've needed five, six, sometimes even ten seconds to then decide. Well, actually, yeah, you know that that was offside. I just think it's wrong on so many levels because you're right. It, it absolutely no doubt someone will get seriously injured at some point in a phase of play which was ludicrously allowed to continue when when it was a clearly offside. And also, I think sometimes as well, and I see Klopp going berserk at it, sometimes it can make it look like you've been opened up by a team and, and a team's created like a really great chance. When in fact, you haven't been opened up because the fella's five yards offside. But it, it almost shifts that kind of feeling in your head of like, oh, you know, looked a bit suspect at the back then or, you know, it's... It's just an absolute nonsense. Like I can understand it for the you know the really tight ones, of course, but the, yeah, the way in which it is used at the moment is just a nonsense. <laughs> 
So UEFA had just one job, one job, and they couldn't get it right. And how complex does a machine need to be to actually pick out two teams facing each other? So this is a re-recording of this part of the pod, because we initially did it when Liverpool got Salzburg, but no, no, that's out of the question now. And now it's a return to the San Siro. Uh, we've got our technical expert, Simon Hughes, here for the re-recording on this. I mean, just how big a computer does UEFA need to make this draw happen properly, Simon? Well, as you know, Steve, I'm not much of a computer nerd. Um, <laughs> but to get the one thing wrong that you've probably got to get right in public, it does make you wonder what they actually oh. get wrong behind the scenes, doesn't it? Absolute shambles of a day, really, from their point of view, when we originally recorded this segment of the podcast. <laughs> I did. I did. I'd like. I'd like to add that I did cast. Uh, I did, I did, you uh, saw it coming, uh, didn't you? I, I could see this coming, Steve. That they were going to have to do the draw again, but they had to. It would be unfair to not do the draw again, even though the draw hasn't worked out particularly well for Liverpool. They they simply had to do it again because um, you can't make a mistake as big as that where you've got one or two teams who basically uh, weren't able to draw other teams in the competition at a certain point of the draw. You, you can't do that. It's a big mistake. And somebody at UEFA should take some sort of responsibility for it rather than just blaming the software, which just seems to be a very easy, easy blame. Let's just blame the computers, Steve. Well, it's clear they've done that because when they did the redraw, the guy who was doing the draw kept looking up and saying, almost can we confirm that with a human? <laughs> a human is, is, is more successful. Um, yeah, Salzburg was a really decent draw, wasn't it? Inter's not the worst draw, but maybe it's slightly tougher than that Salzburg game. It's like one of those game shows where you see what you could have you could have won. Salzburg would have been a good draw for Liverpool. I was bound to say that Liverpool had almost qualified for the quarterfinals with that draw because over two legs, I'd fancy them to beat them. I mean, I must say, Inter, obviously, a hugely historical football club in Italy, one which won Serie A last season under Antonio Conte, but has since obviously changed managers, had to sell a couple of important players. They're doing well this season in Serie A, but they're, they're just above AC Milan, who Liverpool have just beaten in the San Siro at the top of the league. So, I mean, I've got to be honest, I fancy Liverpool over two legs against Inter Milan. I fancy Liverpool against any Italian opposition over two legs, really. I just think that if they perform well and express themselves the way they can, I'd expect Liverpool to go through, but it is trickier in terms of the quality of the players that they're facing. But, as I said, that the manager, Simone Inzaghi, has just gone there this summer. He's got Hasn't got much experience managing in the Champions League. Obviously, has a great time with, with Lazio. But it's a tougher draw than Liverpool would have originally wanted. But I'd, I'd, I'd still fancy them, to be honest, Steve. I, I still think they'll go through. Liverpool's social media team were clearly stood next to Jurgen Klopp when the original draw was uh, was taking place. So they, they immediately fired out uh, Jurgen's thoughts on facing Salzburg, a team and a club he has huge respect for. And I think we're we're waiting for part two of what what the manager's reaction to this this draw is. The other English teams didn't quite get it as bad. I mean, obviously Manchester United had that PSG tie removed from them, so they might be happy with that. But at the same time, they've got a really tricky one to go through against Simeone's uh, Atletico now. Yeah, well, uh, by the same count that I back Liverpool in most games, I, I wouldn't back Man United in most games really because of 
how unpredictable they are. I don't think they have a team yet that's capable of winning trophies. Obviously, we, we've seen Atletico Madrid this this season on a couple of occasions. That I thought they were really disappointing at Anfield. I thought Liverpool made harder work of it in Madrid than it could have been given how they started. But there's always that chance of the rebound in Madrid because of the way Simeone's teams are set up. I think it's a much better draw for United, you know, to be playing Atletico than, than PSG, I think, really. But I think they'll find it hard. Chelsea seems to consistently get lucky on chores. I, I find it always seems to work out quite well for them. Obviously, Man City against Sport and Lisbon, you'd expect them to go through without too many problems over two legs. I mean, I, I think ultimately the winner is probably going to come from England or... The only other two teams capable of lifting the trophy this season will be Real Madrid or, or again, you know, will PSG get it together? I suspect probably not. That's the, the tie of the round, PSG against Real Madrid, who have been performing really well this season. Uh, I think they're in better shape than they were last season. Uh, they've just, I think they've gone, I think the top of the top of La Liga now. They obviously beat Atletico over the weekends, Ancelotti doing a great job so yeah it's, it's between one of the, the, the sort of the, the the three top English teams and then Real and PSG for me so into Milan against Liverpool the, the headline as far as we're concerned does a head roll for this does a computer get rebooted is the, the software debate going to go on Si yeah well obviously the way the world there's no authority being the way authority works I suspect the computer will be thrown against the, the, the wall <laughs> And everybody will keep the jobs. Um, that's the way it is these days, isn't it, Steve? It's an absolute shambles. And I know we. I mean, I can. I actually find it quite funny. I won't lie. I, I quite like it when people who you know who who are in high positions find themselves in a in a spot of bother. But on this occasion, who do we actually blame? Do we blame the actual system, or is there a person to blame? I suspect it's just a culmination of individual mistakes and possibly just the way things are run at UEFA, a certain degree of complacency. I think even Andre Arshavin looked embarrassed by the whole thing, which which says it all, doesn't yeah, it? Well, and by the way, Liverpool couldn't play Villarreal. I think a lot of people were left by the end thinking, oh, Villarreal's a possibility, but Liverpool couldn't play them because it would have left Juventus and Real Madrid as possible opponents for Inter Milan who couldn't face either as Juventus or Italian and Real Madrid yeah. were in their group as well. But it wasn't really explained at the time, was it? So Yeah, that wasn't explained at all. And uh, people got very excited very quickly, saying the draw's been messed up again. Well explained there, Steve. You've done a far better job today than any UEFA delegate. Right, well, let's hope we're not doing part three on this in a few hours' time. But Simon Hughes, so thank you for that. And you are staying there because we're going to talk uh, on more Liverpool issues in just a moment on the Red Agenda. Right, uh, let's get to a piece you've written on who could possibly replace Jurgen Klopp. And uh, James, you're very much saying that Pep Linders is the man in, it, in the front seat for this one, not Steven Gerrard in a few years' time. Uh, no, I, I just think I think sometimes Pep Linders' is, his name is overlooked a bit. I think I wouldn't say at the moment there is a, a clear favourite to take over from Klopp because I think it, it's too far away. You know, it, we're talking about the earliest that job will come up will be the summer of 2024 and we know how quickly things can change in football I think um, obviously the, the dream scenario I think is that is that Jurgen Klopp decides to stick around for a few more years I think that's what every Liverpool fan and certainly the owners would would love to happen although you know as things stand at the moment that that doesn't look particularly likely 
So, um, yeah, I, I just thought, you know, with Steven Gerrard coming up and coming back to, to Anfield and all the talk around him, you know, as Klopp said himself, you know, th- there is a sense of destiny that Gerrard will manage Liverpool one day. I don't think there's any doubt about that. But, you know, when is the question? And I do think, you know, if in 2024 Liverpool are looking for a new manager, then then Pep Linders will certainly be on that that shortlist because, um, you know, he's massively respected by the owners, you know, he's someone that commands respect in the dressing room as well. Such a talented coach. I think sometimes people don't realise just how much of a say he has in terms of, you know, he, he's, he's responsible for the entire training programme, you know, devising everything they're doing down to the, you know, the final drill, who's involved in every session, what they're working on, the tactical side of things. You know, Klopp leans on him as well when it comes to talking about selection. And, you know, when you, when you think, you know, Klopp, inherited Pep Linders, he didn't bring him with him in, in 2015. His responsibilities have, have grown and grown and of course he had that short spell away from Liverpool in 2018 in the months before the Champions League final in Kiev when he went to manage NEC in, in Holland. But you know since he came back that summer after obviously Zelko Bovac left and Klopp needed a new assistant, um, his importance to Liverpool has just continued to grow and I know He's still only 38, Pep Linders, ridiculously. You know, he's been a coach since he was a teenager, since he had a serious knee injury that, that wrecked his hopes of a of a playing career. You know, you get some number twos who are quite happy being in the background, just being out on the grass and all the rest of it, and not being in the spotlight. But I think there's no doubt that Pep Linders, you know, sees himself as a as a manager one day. It's just that we don't know whether that will be at Liverpool or, or somewhere else. And as you quite rightly say in your piece, Liverpool won't want to rip things up and, and start again when Jurgen leaves. Sai, I, I suppose that's why Pep is a really important part of this whole journey. Well, he, I remember when he first joined the academy a good few years ago now and speaking to people at the academy then, some of the players, it's quite clear how different he was to other coaches. You know, the players loved his sessions. I think that's a big thing. I think players really like the stuff that he puts on. You know, he deserves a lot of credit for, for Liverpool's rise under Klopp. You know, one of the close confidants of, of Jurgen Klopp, who trusts him greatly. It's a big step. It'll be a massive, massive decision to appoint somebody who is untested as a manager in English football. I know, obviously, James mentioned the, the spell that he had in Holland, which was better than people actually realise. But, I mean, again, as I say, it's just a big step up. The biggest question mark that I have is... Um, I'll have to be careful how I phrase this, is, is his presentation, how he presents himself, really, more than anything else. Because, obviously, the media and the fans feed off actually everything that a football manager says. He is very, very, very detailed in in his answers, for example. You know, what he's done press conferences for, for some of the cup matches. I remember even in the first season when Jürgen Klopp was Liverpool's manager and he wasn't at the Sunderland game, which had the famous walkout. We had Pep Linders taking the questions from the media and his answers were so detailed. I was like, wow, like this fella clearly knows his stuff. But I sometimes think that sometimes less can be more. I do wonder how people would react to that if, you know, you're trying to explain away maybe a defeat or a sticky patch. So I think that maybe that's something that he'll have to learn over the next couple of years, I'm sure. If Liverpool are thinking about giving him this job, they will have to given more exposure to it before with, with stuff like that because, you know, I'm not saying it, it should be trial by media or anything like that, but the reality is, you know, that the job does involve a lot of media work and I think sometimes 
you know the, the level of detail that he, he gives is just absolutely incredible but you know that it could it could backfire on him sometimes and I think that's where Jürgen Klopp's obviously very good but it'll be interesting to see I mean, it's two years away isn't it so a lot can happen between now and then it's I think that Liverpool like a lot are facing what a lot of clubs elite clubs are facing that there's just a dearth of elite managers who are ready to step into to shoes at this moment in time if you were to ask me who will be the leading candidates outside of the club you'd obviously have Steven Gerrard on the list because of his links to the club and his development as a manager I think he's he's done brilliantly at Rangers I was really impressed by Villa's performance on on Saturday football isn't just about playing you know really nice football all the time you do have to find a way and I, th- I think the last 20 minutes performance proved that you know that, that they were holding back and there was some sort of plan around the game. The only other two people that I can think of would be Pochettino. His Tottenham teams, whenever they come to Anfield over the last 10 years, have been excellent, I think. He's obviously got great experience in the Premier League. Or the other one would be Julian Nagelsmann, who's now at Bayern Munich. It depends how long he, he lasts there. You know, I've seen a little bit of Bayern this season. He's doing excellently there, playing really good football. Obviously, very young manager. But... These are all dependent on availability as well sometimes. Sometimes you've got to get a bit of luck. That's what Liverpool had with Jürgen Klopp. He was actually available when they went to uh, to hire him. Bit of time to go, but check out the piece that James has written. Also have a look at Simon's piece on Stephen Gerrard, the king of uh, of Heighton. Uh, and just a quick thought to finish the pod off. Is Jürgen taking a question from a, a Villa journalist, the best thing you've you've ever seen? Have you seen this? When Jürgen doesn't understand what the, the Villa reporter said. Have neither of you seen this? I haven't seen it. Oh, broad brummy. Jürgen looks absolutely <laughs> bemused and oh, he just turns and says, what? <laughs> it's absolutely <laughs> brilliant. Check it out. Uh, si, you're looking dazed by that, but mm. I thought that was I thought that was a Twitter sensation yesterday. Maybe I was wrong. Maybe I don't spend it on the day one. It's like you, Steve. I don't know. Very, very funny. He doesn't, he doesn't get it at all. I mean, the, the Brummy accent sometimes can be a little bit tough to understand. <laughs> Boys, thank you very much indeed. Simon Hughes, James Pierce got a handle on everything except the funniest moment of the weekend. And uh, I'll be back uh, at the very end of the week for another Red Agenda. We'll catch you then.